Hi there, my name is Matt Furness and this is The Culture Hack, a video and podcast series that captures experiences and life lessons from those who know culture best. The goal? To help you to understand, design and change your company culture. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Culture Hack. It's Matt Furness here from Click Culture Consulting, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Casper Craven. Now, it's hard to capture everything that Casper has achieved, but I'll do my best. So Casper has sailed twice around the world, the first time on the world's toughest yacht race and the second time with his family. He was a director at KPMG. He's had several stints as a CFO. He's built uh, multiple ventures from scratch, one of which he sold for a $7 million. Uh, seven-figure uh, sum. He's a best-selling Bloomsbury author who's written, written several books about topics like being more human at work and setting big, bold goals. Today, he's an inspirational keynote speaker who talks to some of the world's biggest and best organizations about leadership, mindset, and teamwork. But I think more important than all of that, the interactions that I've had with Casper have led me to believe that he's a really kind human being. And so because of all of that, I'm really looking forward to speaking to him today. So welcome, Casper. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Matt. And uh, I've got that same sense about you as well, by the way, that kindness too. So I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thank you very much. Awesome. Brilliant. And we'll be talking about all things company culture. But first, I've tried to do your story some justice, but tell us a little bit more about your story and your background. Okay, great. Well, look, I think you did a pretty good job there, actually. So um, the uh, so let me add in a little bit more colour. So, um, yeah, so first job out of uh, university uh, was training as a chartered accountant. So uh, very much a, a numbers uh, driven uh, background. Um, and then uh, after that, uh, joined um, KPMG as an investment banker, uh, which I did all told for about five years. Although within that, uh, I managed to take a year off to go and sail around the world on the BT Global Challenge, uh, which was affectionately known as the world's toughest yacht race. Um, learned a huge amount about, um, about people, uh, what happens when you put people under pressure in extreme situations. And I uh, came into interaction, I guess, with, with cultures, with people that I just wouldn't normally have met. So it gave me a much more uh, rounded, much more diverse view of the world. Um, came back from that and uh, finished my time at KPMG. And then after that, uh, I've been launching my own ventures um, ever since, um, both my own ventures and also being CFO in, in some ventures for other people as well. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so since then, yeah, built uh, various uh, different businesses. Um, and uh, perhaps notably as well, in 2014, decided to go around the world a second time with my wife and our three kids under the age of 10. Uh, my wife didn't sail beforehand, so we had quite a steep learning curve to go up uh, with getting everything ready, didn't have a boat, all sorts of different things why it should never have worked. Um, and again, that whole ex extreme experience taught me an awful lot about, uh, about culture and about the mindset to do things a little bit uh, differently. I think uh, since coming back from that adventure in 2016, um, I've, one, been launching um, some exciting new businesses, um, disrupting different markets, um, and uh, also um, writing books and spending most of my time actually on the speaking circuit, talking to organizations about the mindset that we need to be able to thrive in today's very fast-moving, very disruptive world. So, um, yeah, hopefully a little bit more color in there. 
Brilliant. Thanks so much, Casper. And what I find fascinating about your story is that you sort of sit at the intersection between the sort of um, accountancy, hard financial side of things, whilst also simultaneously crossing over to the the HRE people culture uh, side. And with that in mind, the reason I find that interesting is because I think at times... um, people in HR and people in culture type roles are trying to persuade people in CFO roles or, you know, financial roles to, to give them budget. So what I'm really curious to hear is as someone who's been a CFO in the past, how high or low was culture on your business's priority list? Look, the short answer is that it was low and I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. I remember when I was working for, um, for, for um, you know, one of the big four accounting firms and being, being part of a small group, being asked our view on how the organization was doing and different things we could be doing. And I remember talking about, you know, the human side of things. I've always been drawn to that side of things, you know, what makes us tick as human beings. And I got almost dismissive response back from one of the senior people there. Oh, well, yeah, that's all the soft skills type stuff. Let's focus on the hard stuff, shall we? And, and, and the strategy and those sorts of things. And it's like, whoa, hang on a second. And there's just something about that that just really jarred with me. And I think, you know, even that language, isn't it? The soft skills, it just puts a sort of um, a polish on it, which I think is just not the most helpful thing. And I think you know, those things sit right at the heart of how does any organization um, achieve things. So, you know, that's the whole notion. We only hear what we understand, right? And I think that to really understand this stuff, you have to look at it from that that human-centric view of the world. And, you know, one of my favorite uh, neuroscientists, uh, Anthony Damasio, he says, we're not thinking creatures who feel, we're feeling creatures who think. And I think it's that understanding of human beings, which is so crucial to how we're going to achieve anything together as a team. It's unlocking uh, the talents of each different person. And I think, you know, from Mm. when I go back to my numbers driven side of the world, it just didn't really sort of take account of that. And... So I think mm-hmm. that's that's the bridge to overcome. And clearly, I'm sitting on both on both sides of that. So how does one sort of you know get people coming on that journey and helping to explain that? Because you can't explain it quite so easily in terms of hard ROI numbers and those sorts of things. So I think it has to be stories. It has to be experiences to get people to start to really appreciate this. And in the work that I do, there's a number of different techniques that I use to help to bring that to life to people. And there's no question in my mind at all that it's just so, so um, fundamental um, in terms of how we do that. And I've got some stories about how that came to life um, for me. Maybe I'll share that story, actually. The, um, I mean, sorry, go on. No, uh, I was just going to say what I really appreciate about your answer there is your honesty. I think a lot of organizations i hear them say yeah culture is a great priority for us but then their actions and where they spend their budget is it suggests otherwise so i really appreciate you saying no actually it wasn't a priority at the time and you're you're getting into my next question which i think you're getting into is when you were a c cfo what would have persuaded you to invest more in culture what and yeah i'll pause there that's the question yeah what would have persuaded you to invest more in culture so I'll tell you the specific story about what persuaded me to invest more in culture. Again, I go back to that notion. I'm fascinated of learning at the extremes. 
And I think it was around 2012. And, um, you know, I had a mission to, to build our business. Um, and I started driving things very, very hard, really, really pushing things because, um, you know, aggressive growth targets, which is not an uncommon feature, right? And everything came to a head to me when basically my team turned around to me and said, we're not sure we want to work with you anymore because we don't like the way that you're driving things. And I, effectively, I was threatened with everybody uh, walking out. And that was the point in time. It's like, you know what? These um, approaches that I've developed about numbers first, driving for the numbers, pushing people really, really hard, I'm not sure that's working anymore. And I was literally faced with that thing. It's like, okay, I need to do something different. And back in the day, that was when I uh, went and started working with, with a coach. Um, again, it's an alien concept to me. Uh, basically, my team encouraged me to go and do that. Someone who can hold the mirror up to you and show you those blind spots, those things that you can't see. And um, Margaret, uh, Margaret was my coach. And, uh, you know, she shared the very powerful South African proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, then you have to go together. And for me, it's like, okay, that light bulb moment. I can't do this on my own. We need to have a team of people. I can't just drive people to to the numbers. I've got to engage people, find out what's driving each of them. We have to get the culture right. So it was almost like it was the breaking point for me that literally slapped me around the face and said, I need to go and do this in a different way. I hope that nobody else out there has to go to that pain point to get to that realization point. But I'm sure that, you know, stories like that, and there'll be plenty of other stories out there that get people to stop and say, okay, what is it that we need to do to engage our people, to get our culture right so that we can really go and achieve the, these things together? So, um, combination of stories and, and hopefully not so many bad experiences i mean look the research backs it all up as well i mean you've got, i mean in, in in the latest book there's a whole bunch of research which all points towards the same sort of thing the cult the companies that get the right culture they go further they go faster they achieve more things so um, it seems fairly self-evident to me having been inside the research and my own experiences that's the right way to do things mm. So I've heard a couple of things there. The first, I think, um, point is around almost getting that light bulb moment through helping people to feel it and to hold up the mirror so they recognize truly what what their impact might be at the current time on others so that they understand yeah. that this stuff isn't soft. It's actually hard. And then the second is if in combination with that relying on the sort of the logical argument around the research and the evidence around what you will get by focusing more on company culture yeah no exactly right exactly right yeah the research the science backs it up it's a good thing to do and if you don't believe that again try it yourself and then see see, see what happens when you get to the extremes and um, it will come unstuck so great and and what are the what are the mistakes that you've seen sort of CPOs, HR directors make when trying to approach you as a CFO or talk to you as a CFO about culture? What are the what are the turnoffs? What are the mistakes that you've seen them make? That's a good question. Um, the mistakes that um, people make. I mean, I think you know, one of the, the, the key things, I think, is to be able to influence 
anybody. You've got to understand what's already influencing them. So I think it's an acknowledgement of the priorities for different people in the different roles. So I think it's taking the time to step into anybody else's world. I mean, that's general sort of anything if you want to influence um, somebody. So it's almost like, you know, so you're the, you're the CFA, I get you have responsibility for, for doing this, you have for, for driving this, for keeping the numbers tight and so on. And then it's explaining how the, uh, whether it's the CPA role or the CHR role or, or whatever it is, it's, it's explaining how that fits within that. And, you know, one of the things that I'm always a great proponent of is what I call deep listening. And it's, it's so much the case, isn't it, that we... When we ask people questions and we listen and we hear the answer, we're not really listening. We're just, you know, thinking about what we're going to go and say next. And I think there's something very powerful about understanding the drivers for the different people around the table at the senior level. Well, what actually are the things that are going on? Because we're so focused on our own thing, aren't we? But actually understanding that bigger picture. And I guess, you know, in, in, in my world, I've been lucky enough to, uh, having worked in lots of different early stage businesses, to have worn all the different hats and to have felt and to experience that perspective. But I guess someone who's been in one line role all the way through wouldn't necessarily understand that. So asking questions, being curious, what are the pressures that you're facing and going into people's worlds? Because I think the more we do that, the more we can appreciate, the more we can understand, and therefore the more we can influence as well. So um, taking the time basically, which you know, is a hard thing to say when we're all pressured, I get that. And nobody's sitting around saying, you know, I've got a spare few hours this week, what shall I do? Nobody say it does take some conscious work to find that time, but I do believe that genuinely pays dividends taking that time to really understand. So it's taking the time to talk to the CFO or the CEO, whoever whoever holds the purse strings, and to really truly understand what is keeping them up at night and then any messages that you want to share orienting them around those those key concerns those key motives those key things and I think what I would add to that is sometimes what people say won't give you the honest answer and you might need to do a little bit of sort of reading between the lines and sort of observing what they're not saying to help you to shape your point because I think people won't always tell you the honest things that might be motivating motivating them or concerning them at a given time you know yeah no I think I think that I think that's absolutely um right I mean I think you know just on that point I mean just when how how ruthlessly honest are, are people um then I I think the answer is yeah people often give the, what is it, I think it was a uh, guy who founded uh, JP Morgan Julius Pierpoint Morgan who always says there's always two reasons that people give you the reason that sounds good and then the real reason and of course the key thing is trying to get <laughs> down to the real is what's actually going on here because so often we hear that surface level things like yeah, that's that's not really the answer is it and that only comes mm. from that trust building. It's funny, a lot of the, um, the, the work that I do with clients, um, we spend a lot of time really building, um, certainly amongst senior leadership teams, that openness, that listening, that trust, that vulnerability, focusing on what, pe- what each person is amazing at, and really starting to get people to connect as human beings. And I think once we do that and we have that level of trust, that level of understanding, then all the other problems down, downstream from that can be solved much more easily. And so I was with someone yesterday and I was talking about um, the whole strengths-based approach. And she was saying, okay, well, yeah, I'm going to go and do a strengths and weakness conversation with people. And it's like, well, 
I don't think that's a good idea to do strengths and weaknesses together. It's such a cliched thing, isn't it? Because if you do that together, then all someone is waiting for is, oh, what's the weakness? What's going to, what's going to come up? And you, folk, you forget about the strengths and actually separating those two different things and spending that time creating that cohesion together in a, a warm, fuzzier place where you're open, you're trusting, you're vulnerable. I think that when you do that, then you have the bedrock dealing with so many other um, tough things. So, um, you know, it comes back to the understanding point, doesn't it? So. And, and what I'm noticing from this conversation is already lots of the things that you're sharing are ideas that you shared in um in your most recent book, The Big Bold Mindset, which I've uh, which I've recently read. And I, what I love about it is how you've written it. You've written it, it without sort of big, chunky paragraphs. You've really just split up key points and it's it was really enjoyable to read. But for the benefit of the learner, tell us a little bit about what that book is about and what motivated you to, to write it. Yeah, okay. Thank you for the question. So look, the... Um... Um, in 2020, I wrote um, this book here, um, Be More Human, uh, which is all about how do we rethink the rules of high performance teamwork. And that book for me was bringing more humanity, more empathy, more understanding into the workplace, not just because that's the ethical thing to do, which it is, uh, but actually it's probably the single best thing that any organization can, can do to um, you know, make their organization, uh, help their organization achieve their goals. And I remember doing a talk for, um, for a large professional services firm. And I sat down afterwards with the, um, the, the CEO and the HR director. And I held up two copies of the book. One said, be more human. And the other one said, big, bold goals. And I said, I'd love to send you a copy of the book. Which one would you like? And the HR director said, can I be more human? And the CEO said, can I have big, bold goals? And I suddenly realized that a book called Be More Human, it resonates with, uh, with people in L&D and HR and so on, but not necessarily with senior decision makers. Um, and so therefore... That was the thing that started me off writing The Big Bold Mindset. And so there's many of the similar principles in Be More Human appear in The Big Bold Mindset. But that was just my starting point. Since then, it's like, well, actually, I want to go and um, research and study what some of the most effective leaders on the planet are doing and how are they achieving their big, bowls, big bold goals. So the latest book brings in latest science, latest research, latest thinking. It's got some provocative thinking in there, uh, which I think is not commonplace in the working world. So basically, it's just so, so my, my reason for writing, therefore, was to just challenge how things are done and say, you know what, is there a better way for us to lead our organizations, for us to build our cultures, for how do we um, you know, achieve things together? So basically, it was meant to be um, a shot in the arm of a fresh thinking and a, a series of ideas um, for, for aspiring leaders. Fantastic. So it's this idea of learning from best case examples and extreme examples of, of things that leaders and businesses have been able to achieve. And, and within that, you talk about five themes and 21 leaders for the modern, uh, 21 areas for the modern leader to, to focus on. My question to you then is, which one or two of these are the areas that you think would have the biggest impact on the culture that the leader creates around them? Yeah. Um, so which ones would have the most impact? I'm going I'm I'm to pull out two, and they're in direct um, con conflict, if you like. So I'm going to juxtapose those, those two different things. So they're, they're related. So the first one I would say is I think that um, it's, it's the first section is around um, thinking um, bigger. 
um, and just radically um, reevaluating how we look at what, what we're going to go and grow. Because I think, you know, we live in a very disrupted world now. I can't think of any sector that's not being um, disrupted. The McKinsey quote from last year, the pace of change will never be this slow again. That's the economic backdrop. That's the backdrop to the world. And, you know, one of my favorite sayings is that you can't navigate a new world using an old set of charts. We're definitely in a new world now uh, with this pace of change. And I think depending on uh, who you speak to in the working world, you can figure out the models and the thinking they have. Was it 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago? And you can see the thinking and the models that have influenced them. And so for me, it's like, well, OK, what are the things that we need to be doing differently? And for me, the, the big thinking is um, that process of going out five years from now and saying, OK, what does that world look like? What does that ecosystem look like? What are the trends? What are the patterns? What are the changes? And to start to chart where you want your organization to be positioned in five years time. Not today, because today won't exist. It'll, be, it'll move on very, very quickly. And so to orientate around that model out there. And then, of course, to work backwards from that. And what I think happens a lot now is people look at their P&L and say, OK, well, how do we grow it by 10 percent? How do we grow it by 20 percent? Why? Because that's the way we've always done it. Right. So for me, it's that fundamental shift in terms of how do we think about things. So it really is um, quite a big um, cultural shift. And, and that brings up lots of different um, emotions um, around change, around uncertainty. Well, what am I certain about anymore? Well, not a huge amount of things. And a lot of people feel very uncomfortable uh, with that. But I think that's one of the key cultural um, things is orientating the model towards the future. So that's the first one. Um, then I think yep. the juxtaposition for that as well is around um, resilience, which is how do we um, manage ourselves in order to be able to go and achieve something that uh, we don't can't quite see so clearly, whereas you know, 10, 20 percent, we can see that quite clearly. And if I pull on a data point, it was, um, I think, from uh, 18 months ago, they looked at the, um, uh, the number of CEOs in the FTSE 350 who stood down. Between 2021 and 2022, it doubled. So more than 10% of FTSE 350 CEOs stood down in 2022, up from 5% the previous year. There's lots and lots of similar statistics, which tell me that the skills around resilience, around adaptability, we are to be found wanting in terms of those skills. And I think those things need a fundamental rethink um, around, you know, how do, we, how do we tackle those challenges, especially when we're going out there for those big, pulled, uncertain goals. And I think that um, so much of what I would describe traditional resilience thinking is almost like, you know, just tough it out and, okay, we'll just go and do this and sort of, um, you know, come on, let's, let's go and do this. And I don't think that's fit for purpose anymore. I think the resilience skills that worked 10, 20 years ago don't work anymore. So for me, when I think about resilience skills, that's a lot of the internal dimension, how we think about us, how do we think about um, our own emotional patterns, what's actually going on for each of us, and how do we curate and manage our own self-leadership day to day. So for me, and there's clearly a lot more depth we can talk about, but it's the juxtaposition of those two different things. The market is forcing us to look out there into the future and think big and bold. That brings into sharp contrast 
that we haven't got necessarily got the resilience skills to be able to, to deal with that. So that needs to be developed in conjunction with that. So for me, those are two are probably the most important shifts, I think. That, that makes total sense. And if leaders and managers start to do those two paradoxical things, what do you mm. think will be the impact on the people around them? Yeah, like the, um, what that does is that clearly then puts pressure on the, the, the big, bold goals, put pressure not just on you, but on the entire team. So everybody has to rise up at the same level. So therefore, it's making those resilience skills, those tools available to, um, you know, the, a, a much wider organize, uh, much more widely inside the organization. Like, you know, one of my passions is around mental health. I'm involved in a number of different uh, mental health early stage businesses, building technology platforms, doing services and so on. And actually just looking at the challenges across organizations, that level needs to rise up significantly. And, that, and, and the um, access to that type of help needs to be much more prevalent. So I think that it will definitely put pressure across the organization. Um, but therefore, it, we, need, we need to have an upping of those skill levels um, to be able to deal with that. I find it interesting that you are, that you are, it's a high challenge, high support type culture, it sounds like, one where it's so pressure is good, pressure is not bad. As a team leader, you are allowed to put pressure on your people. It's not about making it this sort of cozy, stifling place to work. That is good. It's just about ensuring that it's balanced and matched with high levels of support for someone's mental health. And you can do both in tandem. I've when I've worked with leaders, I find that they struggle to hold those two things in um, in place. I find leaders will tend to go on one side or the other. So you have the leader who pushes hard, expects high, directs, but then doesn't give enough support. And then equally, you've got the team leader who you'd love to go for a pint with at the end of the day, and you really like and respect as a human being. But also, they're scared to give difficult feedback. They're scared to set, set audacious goals. And I, I agree with you that if team leaders are able to do both, both challenge and support the, the mental health of people and provide uh, um, you know, both of those things at once, that's the environment that will create high performance and performance that is sustainable over time. You know, I think you've summarized that beautifully because I think it's a really hard line to walk. I'm not saying this is easy. But it's exactly that. People do tend to go one way or the other way, but it's in those two things. That's where the tension exists. And, you know, deliberately, I guess, in my work, you know, there's the tension between the big, bold mindset and being more human. The tension is there between those, uh, those two different um, things. But I think, you know, one of the accompanying things that I, that, I, that I observe makes that a lot easier is this the, the notions of um, of humility, the notions of open mindedness and curiosity, and this is something that I see is very evident in a lot of the uh, big bold leaders that, that that I've studied, and I think when one has those characteristics, that helps to reframe things like 
you know, failure and challenge. Well, okay, what can I learn from this? What can I do differently? And so this, therefore, this mindset of just continuously running experiments and helping us to inform where we're going, I think it enables us to be a lot more gentle on ourselves rather than sort of beating ourselves up because we made a bad we made a bad decision and it's just that continual iteration and you know as peter diamandis is you know the road to bold is paved with failures and it's just sort of accepting that's just a part of the uh, thing and i think you know so often uh, people veer to one dimension or the other dimension that, that, that you mentioned there because of that fear of failure but actually i think embracing that and that sense of curiosity is is a helpful path through through that um, that challenge that paradox. Mm. And I, I think we're talking about quite sort of big ideas here. And what I'd love to do is to talk about some like really pragmatic and practical things that you would mm. suggest leaders do. You know, after listening to this. Um, after listening to this podcast episode, for example, things that they can say, things that they can do, really small things to start to put these big ideas into practice straight away. Yeah, no, great. Look, the um, so let me tell you the actually what I'll do. I'll give you um, a construct um, which I often use, or we often use in a lot of our um, programs and workshops. Which basically it starts off by getting people um, in, in pairs to really spend the time listening to each other and listening to what's driving each person and to play that back, to demonstrate they're really listening and understanding and to build that relationship, that rapport between people. And it's, you know, it's a skill that's vital at home as much as it is at work. And by the way, all the things that I say, um, I believe all the skills um, can be developed at home or at work. And paradoxically, actually, I learned most of my skills for leadership in the home environment, became a better leader, a uh, better uh, parent, a better uh, husband. And once I developed the skills there, then I took them back into the workplace. And so, oh, hang on, these skills work, <laughs> work quite well here as well, which just showed the fact to me they're human skills. So... Um, the, um, so the first point is, yeah, that listening, really taking the time to listen. And I think, you know, when someone has had that experience of someone being a hundred percent present, listening to you, really understanding what's going on for you, it's just an incredible experience and it doesn't happen very, very often. I'm, I'm sad to say. Um, so, so quite often that's a really, really good starting point of, of what I call deep listening, which I go into a little bit more detail in, in, in the book on. But so that's that's a really good thing. Then the second thing that I think is very, very powerful is getting people to be sharing experiences when they've been challenged, to be open, to be vulnerable with colleagues. Here's the things that I've really, really struggled with. And here's the things that I found that were helpful to pull me out of that. And I think when we do that, then uh, that openness, it brings us closer to other people. And we realize, actually, you know what, you're a human being just like I am. And it makes it easier for us to deal with, with those challenges. So that piece around sharing challenges is very, very powerful. And then the third exercise that we do, and that's probably the most powerful exercise um, that, that I think I have observed in, in, the, in the teams that I work with, is what I call the superpowers activity. Now, like you, like I, and perhaps most of your listeners will have done things like Insights, Discs, Myers-Briggs, and so on. And um, you, know, you get back the big computer printout showing you, you know, your, your strengths, your weaknesses, where you're best suited, and all those sorts of things. And those definitely have a place. But for me, the most powerful thing I've ever done around this is, yeah, what I call the superpowers activity. 
I talk about in some length in the book. But basically, you go and ask people who know you well, what's the thing that I'm really, really amazing at? And you're just finding that one or two superpowers, one of those two strengths. And when you start hearing in the voices of people that you know, you trust, you like, and they're all saying the same thing about you or very similar things, what I notice is we tend to take much more notice of that. And you start pulling on that thread where your strengths lie. Um, what I notice about human beings is so often um, when we're exceptional at doing something, we tend to undervalue that and say, well, I'm amazing at that. Then probably everybody else is as well. So we never really get to that zone. It's one of those things to dial in on. So that exercise of finding out for yourself from people who know you well, what you're really, really amazing at doing. And then having a conversation with your colleagues around that. Actually, here's what I'm really good at. And so everyone will say, oh, yeah, I can see that in you as well. And it's really bringing that, that conversation mm. to life. It's very human conversations. So all those three things there, for me, it's humanizing people around you. It's building stronger, deeper relationships that we said a little bit earlier that helps mm. downstream to deal with all those other different issues. So they're three very, very practical, mm. simple conversations, one around listening, one around resilience, one around building on your strengths. And for me, mm. creating that bedrock in whether it's a big team, small team, doesn't make any difference. Home team's exactly the same thing, right? Um, for me, very, very practical, but very, very powerful at the same time. Mm. What I love about them is they're, they're, t they're all controllable. If you're listening to this as a team leader, you can go away and do this. Nothing's stopping you from doing it. It is solely in your control to start to listen more in conversations and, and to, to have those conversations that you described. What I really liked about the superpowers activity is it's the specificity of positive feedback. So what I notice is we can be quite specific when it comes to constructive feedback often because we're fearful that what we say will have a negative impact. So we invest time in preparing our message and saying, here's, right. here's exactly what you need to change. But then when it comes to the positive feedback, we'll say, yeah, great job, awesome work, top stuff. Um, but why? Why was that work so good? Tell me, because if I don't know, then I can't repeat those things, right? So it's, it's being as specific with your... Um, positive feedback as you are with your constructive feedback. I loved how you did X because it meant that Y. In the future, would yeah. love it if you do more of that. And it's equally as powerful, more powerful, because you're both praising them and they know to repeat it. So it's still really good feedback. So the reason I'm saying that is because your superpowers activity, people are probably he hearing stuff that people have thought of, but just not They've just said top job as opposed to Casper. I really love it when you X, Y, Z. And I think that's your superpower. So it's just sort of getting that sort of specific positive feedback out for people um, as opposed to just keeping it in people's heads. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And look, I think the, every, the more I spend time in the working world and the and, well, just the world generally um, is that every single person is so unique, has got such a different set of skills and experiences and taking the time to really understand what is brilliant about each person, what's that unique thing that they bring over and above, you know, I'm, I'm in finance or in marketing or in HR, whatever the, the, the headline role is. It's those personal characteristics, those traits. Oh, you're really good at building relationships. Are you really good at opening up new conversations? You're really good at sort of solving really tough problems. It's knowing those behavioral aspects of the people around your team, having that conversation around that. There's something so very empowering mm. around that. And the other thing that's really powerful as well 
So I remember when I first did this exercise, and I can still remember the words that other people used about me because they really landed with me because they were people that I trusted. And it's when I charted that out, and I've used that almost as like my pole star. Well, not almost. I have used it as my pole star to say that that's the direction that I should double down on. And it literally came from asking people who knew me well and sort of, okay, I'm going to lean more into that. So it's just, again, those very, very simple human things. It's so, so easy to make something so, so complex. But actually, everyone around you already knows what you're brilliant at. All you've got to do is go and ask them. Yeah, great. And and on the topic of all these sort of small practical things, a question I ask all my guests is, what's a culture hack that you love? So that's something that takes little effort but can have a, a big impact. Ah, look, I think the, um, I mean, my favourite one is that one we've literally just been talking about there about the uh, about the superpowers um and um yeah I and mean, i think the other one is the <laughs> a simple culture hack when you ask someone a question stop and listen to the response rather than just sort of you know you know how it is we're going oh how are you okay oh, good great great and you're just not really thinking about that you're just mm. powering through there if you ask a question stop and stop and listen to it i mean it's mm, um mm. <laughs> bit... it's it sounds so basic but but for me there's a big difference between behaviors and skills. And what I find is often we confuse the two. So when someone doesn't do something, we assume they've not got the skills. So then we send, we send people on active listening workshops and things like that. I'm telling you now, if you put those same people in an interview tomorrow, they will listen and they will listen actively. They can do it. They just choose not to because they've got distractions going on or whatever it might be, right? So for me, um, it's one of those things of even if you can do it, it's not can you or can't you, it's are you doing it? Look at yourself hard in the mirror and ask yeah. yourself, am I really doing this as consistently as I want to be doing? Am I doing it on my bad days? Am I doing it consistently with different types of people? That's that's what you should ask, not can I do it? Of course, you can probably do it already. Most people know how to listen. They just choose not to consciously or otherwise so i i totally agree that that is a culture hack that if people just it's a skill you've already got just do it more consistently and yes. you will build the trust of people around you you'll get better ideas you'll build a better culture around you so i totally understand why you why you went there for your culture hack yeah no, it's interesting by the way i mean one of the things that i, I always ask uh, my audiences um, is this question around uh, past, present, future, which again just sh shines a light for me on how we are all so different. And this is a question that came out of a recurring argument that I used to have both in my home life and my work life, where I would say, let's go and do this in the future. And then somebody else would say, but we've always done it this way in the past. It used to frustrate the hell out of me. It's like, why can't we just like go and do that thing out there in the future? And let me develop this question, which is, you know, of 100% of your time, energy and focus, what percentage gets drawn towards the past, the present and the future? So when I first asked myself this, I said, my, I'm about 0% in the past, which, by the way, I don't recommend because you need to look at the past and reflect and learn from that. Um, so I've changed my numbers since I became self, more self-aware around this. Um, but back in the day, it was 0% in the past, 10% in the present and about 90% in the future. 
when I asked Nicola, my wife, she said her numbers were about 50% in the past, about 30% in the present and about 20% in the future. Look, it's very rough, broad brush numbers, but it paints a picture. And what I find is that I was talking about the future and she was talking about the past. And so actually just that one piece of understanding enabled us to have a gateway then to have better conversations. But fundamentally, what it's doing is facilitating a conversation to say we all look at the world very, very differently. We've all got diverse views. And I always ask my audiences, where do they most tend to focus? And you can see hands up across the room. Everyone's got a completely different focus. And it's one of those one of many biases that we've got that we all look at things differently. And if we really want to unlock the talents in our team, we've got to take that time to understand what's driving each and every person. And there's all these little sort of roadways into it, which just give us that insight and that understanding so that, you know, we basically we can have better conversations. So how, do we, how are we going to go and do this together? Mm, absolutely. And it all comes from that first step of asking good questions and proper, properly, actively, fully listening and anchoring yourself in the present, switching off distractions. And by the way, this is something that I am not good at. This is something that I struggle with day every day. So if you're listening and you're thinking Matt and Casper are getting on their high horses, um, I'm not at all, quite the opposite. This is something I definitely need to get better at. So thank you for the reminder. And I am also conscious that we could talk about this all day and I'm really conscious of your time and the listeners' time. So Casper, just before we close, do you have any final reflections on our conversation? Uh, look, I, the, um, I think that uh, I've really enjoyed the questions that, you, that you've been sharing here. I think, you know, one of the, um, the, the simple hacks I would always sort of have pull all this back to is the reason that I have um, a thumbprint on all my books is that if you're ever in a situation you're unsure about what to do, I always say, just look at your thumb. Look, remember that you've got a thumbprint there. You're a human being, just like everybody else's. What would a human being do in this situation? And so often I find just that reminder just cuts through everything. A lot of things that I share, they seem simple and they seem self-evident. I'm, I'm a great believer in trying to simplify things. The world is complex enough. It doesn't more complexity. So just going back to that very human level, what is it that makes each person tick? How can we unlock that so that we can go and achieve everything? And yeah, look at your thumb. You're a human being, just like everybody else. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Casper. What a lovely uh, note to end on. So I just want to say a huge thank you to you for sharing your time today and your experiences. Thank you so much, Casper. And if, if people want to contact you, what's the best way to do so? Yeah, uh, by the way, thank you, Matt, as well. I've really enjoyed our conversation too. So thank you for the generous questions. Um, look, I'm quite easy to find Casper uh, Craven, C-A-S-P-A-R Craven. Um, my website, caspercraven.com, LinkedIn, all the usual places. Brilliant. Awesome. Thank you so much. So the only final things to say are if you like this episode, please do listen to our other episodes for more firsthand experiences and lessons on all things culture. Otherwise, that's all for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Go well, everybody.